Welcome to Concerning the Spiritual in Art, a podcast exploring spirituality, consciousness, and the creative process. I'm your host, Martin Benson. All right, y'all, welcome back to the podcast. I have a fascinating episode for you today with artist, lecturer, writer, uh, Michael Carter. Um, Michael and I had just an amazing conversation that began sort of around his origins and his interest with theosophy um, and how he got into learning about theosophy, what theosophy is, and sort of how the theosophical frameworks of the uh, early 20th century really paved the way for modernist abstraction and for ideas and art um, that are really coming back into the forefront of how we're seeing art today, which is a very exciting thing. Um, we not only talk about the history of those movements, but also why perhaps spirituality and art became sort of a taboo subject within the uh, art world for such a long time. He kind of gives us some context around why that might have been. And then also sort of about where uh, this movement is is going now that it's sort of burgeoning again in our uh, in our culture. Um, we talk also a lot, not only about his creative process and these amazing performative pendulum paintings he does, um, his aura paintings, but also about sort of the role of an artist and what it means to be an artist as opposed to what it means to be a spiritual practitioner and sort of where the those boundaries uh, are similar and like where they differ. Um, and so it was a very rich and deep conversation. I feel like Michael and I just scratched the surface of the things that we could really talk about. Um, but I think it's going to give you a really broad insight into the wealth of knowledge that Michael has and also the insight he has around um, sort of art making in general and where these movements could uh, could hopefully lead us uh, moving into the future. Um, so I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Um, here's Michael Carter. All right, Michael, welcome to the podcast. How's it going over there in uh, Los Angeles today? Hey, Martin. Thanks again for inviting me on the show. It's great. We've uh, It's been rainy here, which, as you know, is not common, but it's been great. We always need the rain. Yes, definitely. No, I mean, it's pretty wild what's going on in California all across the state the past month or so. Um, these atmospheric rivers, which I try to visualize in my mind what that actually feels like. Um, it's pretty, pretty crazy, but I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you're doing well. And today I'm just really excited to connect with you and all the amazing things that you do. I um, mean, you're, you're first and foremost, an incredible artist, but a researcher, a lecturer, a writer, and these spaces related to spirituality and art. And you just have such a vast well of, of knowledge around the history of these subjects. And uh, I'm excited to pick your brain and just kind of learn about every, all the things you uh, know and how those are incorporated into the work you do. And I think a good entry point for us today would be to learn about sort of your personal story and like how you got into your interest in theosophy and spirituality and art. Like, where did that begin for you? Uh, it, literally through art history. I mean, literally through being an uh, being an art student and being a young artist, and uh, you know, taking foundation painting classes and design classes, and I would every now and hit then hit these kind of weird uh, moments where the explanation for what we were doing or the explanation for something historical seemed seemed weird, mm. and it really just um, you know it it ultimately kind of feeds into like my own biography, my own ancestry, my own family in a way that I didn't even understand at the beginning. And at the time, I just 
was following this path and I was, I was, you know, taking a foundation painting class and they would say, make an abstract painting. And, and I would be like, well, like, what is that? And they'd show us some images and then they would say something like, well, an abstract painting is an ambiguous figure ground relationship <laughs> or something like that. And I was like, this doesn't, right? Like yeah. something about this is missing because yeah. this can't, this can't really like um, encompass the huge range of of work and things that are happening. Like why suddenly at the turn of the 20th century did all of these artists, you know, especially in Europe, but also in America, just suddenly make this radical break. And I didn't really find that I could get, um, I didn't really get very satisfactory answers. And this is like, again, this is like, you know, 20, two decades ago or something right so yeah. it's like the internet wasn't what it was the idea that i would just google it really wasn't there i didn't even know what i was searching for wow. and so what eventually would happen is just the reading you know i learned about the Bauhaus, learned about kandinsky and then every now and then i would see these phrases and somebody would say oh well you know kandinsky was a theosophist and then that would be the end of it and there'd be no explanation no more. <laughs> just no cut context it off right there and and um and I was just like, what is what is going on with this? And so, you know, through a long series of processes, I eventually end up in moving down to Los Angeles. And, you know, one day I'm trying to, uh, I have to go to mail an overnight package. And like the last possible place I can go it is in, is south of downtown. And I go there and directly across the street, there's this huge building. And it says across the front of the building, Theosophy Hall. Hmm. And I was like, that can't possibly be what that is because that doesn't exist anymore, right? Like what, this is something from the past. And uh, so then that really led, but I knew that this was somehow related to what these artists had been motivated by. So that really led then to me eventually going in and um, basically like almost a decade of study with that particular group cool. and, and to kind of just like unpack, like I was like, oh wait, this is what all of these artists were being motivated by. This is, these are the ideas that these people were uh, inspired and they were really passionate about. So what is this? It wasn't mm -hmm. even like so much a matter of, like how I would have understood it as like a, a spiritual process or about even my own um, coming to an understanding of spirituality, because that, that wasn't even the question. It was just like, what is this? Mm. Like what, why, what is this? And why in the context of arts education and art history, why is it that I'd never hear about this if it was clearly so important? Uh, so that, you know, that's kind of how, that's kind of how it really starts to open up that then leads to, everything that happened since then. Wow. That's such like a sort of a serendipitous or like almost like synchronistic moment. Like you had been thinking someone had like planted a seed of just even the word theosophy. And then you all of a sudden you, it comes into your life in like a tangible way in this building. And that just sort of catalyzed your whole journey from where you are. I just think moments like that, when I hear stories that are so miraculous and special um, the way that like one little moment can just totally like veer you in a whole new direction of interest and exploration that really defines a lot of who you're becoming and who you've become this path that you're on. I'm curious, as you started to study theosophy, like what are can, just for some of our listeners out there who might not who might have similarly heard this term before, but don't really understand what theosophy is or was. Can you maybe explain a little bit about like what it is you were studying and sort of how theosophy fits in sort of the framework of philosophical traditions that other people might be aware of? I think that context could be important in this conversation today. Yeah, it's, you know, 
just unpacking that is is actually like a huge conversation yeah we could spend hours right i mean it's like because there's there there is you know like what is it today versus like what was it at 1910 when mm-hmm. it was really having this huge influence on uh um painting and art and abstraction versus like well what are the different currents you know if you if anybody uh you know today today the theosophists are kind of amazing because they're like one of the few groups that seems to be able to like generate these like elaborate conspiracy theories coming from like both sides of the political spectrum Hmm. oftentimes about the same feature so if anybody i had never literally never heard the word theosophy spoken out loud until i went into that building wow and so and that's and that you know but los angeles ultimately turns out to be like like you know um a center for all of these different like sectarian lines of the different groups that emerge out of that and so they're all represented here in different ways like contemporary mm-hmm. contemporarily and historical yeah and it's like you know like well what is it you often will hear say well like it's it's something to do with buddhism or it's something to do with you know hinduism or it it's like and that's definitely a part of it but i think the you know I just last week gave a um, gave a talk at um, and like a, a gallery walkthrough talk as a part of the current Transcendental Painting Group exhibition that's at LACMA, and I had to kind of like um, figure out how to talk about this in fifteen minutes or something. Wow. Oh my god! And so, in addition to talking about the, all this artwork, and so I think in some ways, you know, what when like it, it's a it's a you know the theosophists are arguing that it's a mystical tradition they're arguing that like uh, mystical experience right the kind of like spiritual experience although we all have a subjective um when when that when that we experience that thing it's very subjective mm-hmm. but whatever we are experiencing isn't subjective like that there is like a common basis mm-hmm. or a common reality so in the same sense of the way that like uh you know physics are the same no matter where you're from in the world no mm-hmm. matter who you are right like it all works the same part of the argument that the theosophists are making is that um, mystical experience is also the same as well. And then all of the different traditions that we think of from everywhere in the world, whether that's a, you know, is an, is a, uh, an, a early American tradition, whether that's a indigenous European tradition, whether that's an, a, um, Southeast Asian Indian tradition, wherever you go, they're all sort of, um, local expressions of Mm -hmm. that same idea. Yes. <clears throat> I mean, to me, like, so we're speaking to this sense of like a universality of, of, of spirit of uh, sort of mystical experiences that like, underneath the current of various metaphors or imagery, or like you say, like expressions within these various cultural contexts, there's an essence underlying that that's all the same. You can think about that too, in the context of like cultural mythology, like when you're speaking, what comes to my mind is sort of the studies of like someone like Joseph Campbell, who's looking at sort of through the lens of like Carl Jung, like looking at mythology um, as like telling all these different cultures, telling the same story. Yes. Using a little bit of different characters, little different sort of expressions based on that culture, but the essence of what they're telling, the stories they're telling are all pointing to the same ideas. Is that sort of, would you say there's a parallel there and sort of like how we think about mystical experience, but also how we think about mythology and how there is this sort of 
what Carl Jung termed as like the collective unconscious, which could be this sort of universal space of consciousness that all these expressions sort of derive their essence from. Would you agree with that? Like that sort of parallel? Yeah, I think in the, you know, yes, and to qualify it slightly, mm -hmm. like, I mean, part of one of the things that's really interesting to discover is that the entire academic field of comparative religion was created and pioneered by theosophists. Hmm. So the kind of tr the kind of line that Jung and um, and Joseph Campbell are in, right? Like they're literally in that same There's, academic. Yeah, yeah, they're from the same source. The th I think the difference that like the important detail and of the sort of theosophical perspective is that like it doesn't it's not saying that they're all the same right that like any one religion is the same as the other or any one spirituality is the same as another it's definitely it's definitely aware and and emphasizing that there are differences mm -hmm. but what it thinks is that they have a common source yes and that, that's yeah that yeah there's like a common experience exactly uh, that yeah. that sort of like happened for let's say like various figures in major religious traditions prophets enlightened beings, avatars, however you want yeah. to describe them, they're all having the same experience. And as you may know firsthand, as I've had experiences, sort of mystical experiences through psychedelics or meditation, like there are yeah. no real words that you can use that can equal the experience. Like there's no way that you can sort of summarize and express the totality of what occurred within your heart, mind, and spirit in any way like it's so it's so hard to express that's why i think art exists in a lot of ways because it's and, and all forms of art because it's trying in some way to express the inexpressible um through means that kind of subvert language in some sense sometimes depending on the type of art we're speaking about but i find that like that to me makes a lot of sense like how do you how do you make sense of something that is so like disorienting or like ungrounding in some way from like what you thought reality was and and therefore these figures who had these experiences will teach it in different ways and based on the cultural conditions uh and traditions of a certain geographic location it's going to have find a whole new version of expression which is where those differences ultimately come to me that makes a lot of sense um, cause I find myself on my own spiritual journey. I've always been very interested in, in other religious traditions. And I find the more I study them, the more I see like these threads back to this common source of like experiencing the non-dual interdependent, infinite nature of consciousness itself. Um, and so for me, I, I get all, I get sometimes upset that like, when religious people who are very religious in various ways have butt heads so much, like there is so much they have in common, they don't even realize. Um, and so sometimes I get frustrated by that. I, I feel like I can have an spiritual experience in a church, in a temple, in a mosque, in the woods, anywhere, um, because it's, it's penetrating beyond the surface level distractions to the essence of what it means to be a conscious being in this infinite space and time. Um, so I find that to be really special. Was there anything that you learned in your studies of theosophy that really like triggered some big opening in you or some big insight that kind of sort of changed the way you saw maybe art making or even just your own relationship to your inner life? 
I think specifically in terms of my art making, the question was, if we are, you know, as artists able to um, make art about anything, and, you know, that we're sort of being educated in a sense to say that um, any kind of content is more or less equal, and we're engaged in, in a lot of ways in some kind of uh, self-expression. Mm -hmm. And I, I think what it really, that to me came, I sort of became very dissatisfied with that idea. And I started to feel like, no, you know, maybe everything, maybe as an artist, what I put in my art actually isn't all the same. There are qualitative differences about what my uh, intention as an artist can be and what the message that I want to contain in my work is. Mm -hmm. So I think like that this experience for me was really a lot about solidifying like this is the content that I want in my work. And I think there is a, I think there is a qualitative difference about these, this kind of content versus, you know, anything else that could possibly put in there or nothing at all. Mm -hmm. And so that, like, that was definitely something that was very like, that was, I think a very important affirmation. Yeah. I, you know, in terms of like, like, you know, self opening in these kinds of ways, like that, like, I that is like again like I feel like that is such a like there's so much has happened that like I <laughs> I feel like I would need to pause a minute and think about that to really unpack yeah. like exactly what uh what that entails I mean the, you know obviously a a change in priorities you know mm -hmm. a change in like what like a, a disconnection from popular culture right like a um a revaluing of of relationships like a revaluing of the idea of like uh, what endures we're mm -hmm. constantly being told uh, we live in a time where everything is changing where the cycles are happening faster where you know there's more and more and 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 so therefore we need to this is how we should live I think I've become much more interested in trying to understand what doesn't change mm -hmm. and and what and what are the things that are consistent you know generation after generation after generation culture after culture after culture and and trying to move closer to those things as yeah. a person and in my own work yeah that makes a lot of sense because everything is changing all the time in terms of this dualistic experience we have there's always like on off on off certain things rising sounds emerging thoughts streaming um, you know, then you think of like big cycles and little cycles of change, like cycles of change within our like microbiology versus cycles of change within the great cosmos. But then underneath all of that, what is holding all that together? That's a big question that I have also. It's like, what is it? What is the ground, the stable ground from which all change arises? And and that's an open question for me, something that I'm constantly trying to investigate and understand. And I think depending on your life experiences or depending on sort of like a context of like ideology that you may attach to or hold on to, you may never find that. Or you may, or you might find it in sort of just general terms of God, a sense of God or creator or something of that nature. Um, but I think that's a really important open question to to investigate because when you pay attention to your moment-to-moment -moment experience, there's nothing but change happening all around. Um, but I also think about it in the scales of my own lifespan in this particular incarnation, like 
the person I was as a four-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 13-year-old or a 20-year-old or now almost a 37-year-old, like my body has been changing, everything's changed, but I still feel like me, you know, the whole mm -hmm. time it's, I've been me in terms of this sense of self. Um, and that, I find that to be interesting sort of to explore as well is like how all the casings of my life are changing all the time, but there's always still this feeling of being myself. Do you know, do you have that sort of experience too? Or is that sort of a place like, how do you begin investigating or uncovering a sense of, of the ground that you're speaking of? Like, what's a process that you use to kind of start to peel back the layers of change? I think that's what my art practice is. Like, cool. I think that that's the vehicle that I'm using to investigate those things. Mm -hmm. And like how, you know, I think going back to what you said earlier, the, the whatever this uh, perception is, seems to be something that we ultimately cannot communicate like mouth to ear. Mm -hmm. Like I can't write it down. I can't explain it to you. It's something that like is experiential. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like, I think part of my insight in why I have really focused on these areas for myself is because, it, you know, art seemed to be the way that I could create experiences that pointed to this mm -hmm. or that I could also use it as a way to investigate my under like my state of understanding about what it is I'm talking about yeah in other kind of experiential ways like if we set up these conditions and we create this piece or we make this performance or we give this talk it causes some kind of shift in consciousness mm -hmm. or it, or it, it allows us to access in a more um you know, more, even a more mundane way, non-ordinary states of consciousness. Yeah. Or at least bring to mind things that maybe we haven't thought of before. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, for me, like, I don't, you know, I have a, my own output as an artist is, is varied across a lot of kind of domains of performance of different kinds of like objects of things that are sort of like painting, but I don't really feel like a painter mm -hmm. in terms of those issues. And they're all about just like trying to, how do we connect back to something that is real and actual, but also how do we point towards something that is uh, unknown and potentially unknowable? Wow. I think about that. I mean, as you're speaking about your own sort of process, I love how you're framing that, how like art is the tool you use to investigate these, these ideas. I mean, that's one of the best ways that art can function as a form of like questioning and investigating um, big ideas that just are super drawing for you. I think of your pendulum pieces, those performances. I mean, those are really incredible because I do think they encompass a lot of these ideas that we've already sort of scratched the surface on in terms of change, in terms of the sense of universality versus sort of multiplicity or like relativity versus absolute um, and I think about that in relation to not only like the incredible forms that are made, but the sense of gravity and speaking about even the pendulum itself as like a tool for like uncovering the unconscious sort of modes of the mind. Could you yeah. maybe uh, talk a little bit about like how you began those pendulum pieces, sort of where that process began and how you sort of view them within the context of this conversation that we're beginning right now? Yeah. The pendulum pieces in, emerged entirely out of my study of the um, materials that that 
early generation of abstract artists were interested in reading. So there's this one, uh, what happens in the early 20th century is like, uh, there's a number of texts, uh, occult chemistry, thought forms, man visible and invisible, that are kind of produced by the second generation of the theosophical leadership. Mm -hmm. And they, um, they're all about clairvoyant investigations. They're, um, they are where many of the kind of uh, tropes that we think of of 20th century spirituality, especially ideas that circulate in the New Age, they really um, get into the wider consciousness and culture through this series of texts. Mm -hmm. And so if you go and you look at the... Um, the spiritual and art right catalog the blue book the yeah. catalog mm -hmm. and you look um the very first image in that catalog is a plate from thought forms hmm. and if you look through that book again and again and again you what you will see is that artists in the 1910 through 1930s kind of era they're constantly talking about having looked at this book and referenced this book hmm. and um and the real the argument is basically it's 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 an argument about a like a taxonomy like a vocabulary of uh, forms that exist on an on an astral plane. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is clairvoyant and they can perceive uh, the these objective um, thoughts and emotions take on form, and so that 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 book becomes a huge influence on anybody in that era who is mm -hmm. doing this kind of work. And so one of the arguments they make in the beginning of that book is they they talk about this uh, this kind of Victorian parlor amusement called a harmonograph, mm -hmm. and it's basically like uh, multiple pendulums that have different kinds of weights and they connect to this pen and, you know, you put different ratios of weights on the pendulums and it makes kind of these different um, forms that look similar to this, but mm -hmm. more elaborate. Yeah. And um, and so this is being used basically as an argument like, look, there is vibration and this is a and vibration is somehow fundamental to, um, you know, the manifested universe. And so, look, we can visualize these things. Here is a way that we can visualize these kinds of forces. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, what a lot of my practice has been over the last, um, you know, six to seven years has been about trying to kind of like reach back into these moments and find practices or find um, studio methods basically that were used in the past that I could pick up again and continue to build on. Mm. And so there is a number of plates in the thought form books that are these black and white images of the harmonograph outputs. And, and so I originally started trying to build a harmonograph it was beyond my engineering ability. <laughs> and so I was like, I can do a single pendulum. Like yeah. that's, I can start there. And then that's how, and it was always designed to be on this performance scale to be body scale. Yeah. And I realized while I was testing it, that it was also making these really nice, um, you know, domestic scale wall pieces and things like that. So I was like, Oh, like I will also, I can also do these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So I think the pendulum was really interesting to me because you know, it's it's this kind of great, you know, not only does it talk about the kind of history of um, of how we get to modern science, right? The pendulum is like this tool that keeps on being used in different ways, depending on whatever the paradigm is at the moment. Hmm. Starts out as a divinatory object, becomes about timekeeping, then it literally becomes parts of clocks. And then, you know, it, it just like gets repurposed yeah. again and again. And I was really intrigued about it because, you know, because it uses like the what it's using is gravity yeah. to make the work. And, um, you know, it's like gravity is this thing that we we all accept exists. 
uh, we we can immediately experience its effects on ourselves. So we have like a personal relationship with it. Mm-hmm. But it's also the same force that's responsible for like, uh, you know, shaping the planet, right? Yeah. Keeping the planets in orbit, making yeah. the galaxy, making the, everything up to like the most massive incomprehensible scale is the same force yeah so there was this sense of like having this personal relationship with something that was vastly greater than than ourselves Mm -hmm. and that was something that was really important to me about that work yeah that's amazing i mean gravity is still kind of a mystery i mean i think science scientists are still trying to figure i mean we understand like what it does but we don't really understand like how it does what it does or like where it comes from necessarily. I don't know all the mysteries around it. Scientists out there, um, you probably know more than me, but it is still a mystery about gravity. But I do I do love how you're pointing to it in a metaphorical way in some sense too, because it is this one thing that's holding this whole paradigm of life in balance. Um, when we think about it, not only on the way that it attaches our feet to the earth, and how everything on this planet is centered around the force of gravity in terms of like consequences for actions. You jump off something really high, gravity's going to kick your ass, you know? It's something yeah. we can't deny. Um, but it's also, like you were saying, it's holding galaxies together. It's holding solar the solar system together. It's keeping everything aligned. So like in a way, gravity is kind of maybe a window into this mysterious source of change, you know, the ground of, from which change derives, um, it's experience from, I don't know, but I think the way you're using it in this artwork as a performance piece, like I noticed that you really engage your audience as you set it up. So people, it becomes a meditative experience for people to observe the way in which you manipulate the pendulum's angle of movement. Because when you, and I'll be showing, maybe right now I can flash some work of a bunch of the variety of the pendulum pieces on the YouTube video for those that are watching. But the ways in which you manipulate the position of it creates these different patterns, these different forms um, that come out of it, but they still have this sense of uniformity to them. They still have this sense of mathematics in them, in a way. Um, They're just these beautiful things. And it makes me think a lot about the study of cymatics, how you're talking about how we're trying to visualize like energy or vibration, um, how sound is sort of like the essence of like material form and expression. I think of even in the Bible in the, like one of the first verses, like in the beginning was the word and the word was God. Like, well, word is just a sound, right? It's like a vibration. So like maybe there's something esoteric there, um, in the Bible itself pointing to this idea, but the study of cymatics is really interesting. Have you looked into some of those experiments that people do with like the tone generators and the crystalline, like salt on metal plates and how those frequencies change the pattern? And so like the very, in thought forms, the very next page, the very next section after what I'm talking about is the page on cymatics. Cool. Yeah. So it's like, that's definitely been something that I've like, that would be uh, you know, that's always been in the back of my mind mm-hmm. as a like next step as a, how do you make prints from that? Yeah. How do you fix those. I've seen a lot of interesting things that are already being done. I mean, these ideas are not, um, you know, I think that that's what was really interesting to start to understand is that so many of these uh, concepts, so many of these ideas, they have been circulating around in, in, 
you know, at least in European and American culture, and and perhaps even wider than that, for 150 years now. Mm -hmm. So they are like many of these things are very well. They're very well known. Yes, I think that they're bigger. Um, you know, interrelationship maybe not as much. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. They they are well known. I think especially now in the time that mm -hmm. you and I are. And um, with the internet, like we have access to learning about these things, but for a long time, like think like pre-internet days, like these kinds of conversations um, around like what the theosophical movement was interested in, what artists were sort of exploring, were not really well known in mass. Um, and they no. weren't really explored on institutional levels um, with, I'm thinking more like in the uh, visual art or fine art category. Um, in academic circles, they were kind of shunned or they were kind of people were allergic to ideas of mysticism and spirituality. Um, I mean, that show, the spiritual and art was kind of like a anomaly in terms of the context surrounding it. Um, but now we're in a time where people are more open than ever to these things. But these discussions, like you're saying, have been happening for a long time. And I think there's so much more to discover and to learn. And I think as artists, it's such fertile ground for us to be able to dive into these spaces again and feel confident and comfortable enough to put it out there in the mainstream and find an audience of people who are interested. When for so long, many artists have been exploring this, but were never really granted um, the kind of audience that they might be have access to today. Could you maybe speak to if in your sense of like your studies and your research and your understanding of these historical movements, like why, why were these things not discussed? Why did, why did all of a sudden somewhere in the 20th century, this movement in the modernist painting movement that were of these, all the like Mondrian, like Kandinsky. Um, I mean, just a slew of artists who are so fascinated by theosophy, like all of a sudden it just kind of almost felt like it, dropped off like the face of the earth it just died or went really just went underground maybe speak if you have any knowledge or context about like why that might have happened or what was happening to make that sort of become so shunned or you know yeah i mean that this this that is actually one of the big questions that i went into this whole uh you know um effort in into this whole investigation is like what what happened and and that's part of i think discussing the the lacma show in the the 86 lacma show the spiritual and art like how did that even come into existence yeah like right it's sort of like that's and again that was part of the reason that was a big chunk of why i i reached out you know put in the effort to to connect with that curator and reach out and, and ask him directly like what how did this come into existence because of all of these things i mean i'm you know i you know i know people who were told who were peers of mine in school you know that they should never use the word spiritual in relationship to their art and this this was in the last decade mm -hmm. and you know and i actually don't totally disagree with that statement i think the word spiritual is like as artists we need to i think look at it a little bit more closely and unpack it mm -hmm. because it's it's a very um it's a word that actually doesn't have a definition mm -hmm. and so i think in terms of arts discourse we need to go a little bit more specific yeah. when we're using that word 
um, part, a number of things happen, right? So part of the thing that happens is like, again, we're sort of like, you know, we we'll talk a lot about um, art history that's happening in Europe and art history that's happening in America, kind of the what the the sort of standard narratives that we were using, um, you know, up until pretty recently. And, and part of it, part of the first thing that happens is like, um, you know, the you know the focus of the the art world, right? <laughs> like moves, uh, yeah, in in scare quotes, um, <laughs> moves moves from Europe over to New York, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's that's kind of the narrative. And so these issues were actually seen as European issues. They were seen as things that artists in on in in um, and and Western Europe were engaged with. Mm -hmm. And so when things became moved over to New York, you know, the, there's a whole change. Like, okay, now it's all about, um, you know, the the kind of the romance of American artists and mid-century and all the abstract expressionism, which ultimately is permeated by many of, or is a reaction to many of these things. Mm. So there's, there's that thing that happens. It's also simply a matter of, um, it's a cyclical thing as well, right? Like in the same way that the interwar periods was really, fertile for uh these kinds of metaphysical questions in the arts right like it goes it it you know it becomes it, it really peaks and then it wanes mm -hmm. and so by the mid-century not as much interested artists are more interested in formal questions yeah but then it peaks it peaks up again in the 60s and 70s so you have kind of this like 50-year cycle that's happening and we are once again right in the middle of one of those 50-year cycles yeah and it's interesting because like that cyclicality, like I was advised by some elderly theosophists very early on. They were like, oh, yeah, it's cyclical. It's going to these things come back around and it will come back around again. Yeah. The other thing that happens really dramatically is that, of course, is uh, the whole fallout of World War Two, the whole yeah. sort of like the the you know, what is the what is the character and tone of German National Socialism? It clearly has this very strong mystical aspect to it. Mm -hmm. And so starting in the 60s, a number of academics who are pushing back on the idea that, you know, um, Nazism is a consequence of of Nietzsche, is a consequence of, of Wagner, of these sort of like more high culture ideas, they start to really look at these um, esoteric traditions that are moving. And so what happens starting like, again, strongly through the 60s, through the 70s or something, is there is this connection of saying like, um, we think that um, the the new the new age movement is essentially fully responsible for Nazism, mm. and so that becomes such a uh, hot, like a third rail that it's impossible to have any kind of conversation about it or look at anything in in a different way, and that really only persists until um, again around the era of the spiritual art exhibition at LACMA is yeah. when scholarship finally starts to say, well, actually. It's really that's the this is a is a, is scapegoating really is what it is mm -hmm. and it's also kind of a conspiracy theory when we really start to dig into it we start to understand that the um it's much more complex than that and yeah. that um that this this attempt to kind of reduce these uh early new age movements to being responsible for um you know mystical fascism in europe is is um is is it is it incomplete yeah. and so so and i think also just enough time passes that like we're we're you know we're not in that era anymore we're not mm -hmm. we're not like we're not as with the the perception that um 
the kind of need to sort of totally uh, suppress any connection. And I think too also is, you know, part of what happens with the idea uh, of the spiritual or the mystical is, you know, it's automatically connected to this, this irrational. Hmm. And so, you know, we're modern, we're rational people, mm-hmm. you know, we're leaving all this superstition behind us. Modernism is supposed to be about like this, you know, new vision for, for humanity. And, um, and it can't possibly include the spiritual or the mystical. Yeah, that's, and, and that's kind of how, where we get stuck at until the late 20th century. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, to just uh, to touch back to like the Nazism and sort of the relationship with like kind of occultism and like sort of like dark mysticism. I mean, there is some interesting historical information around like the Nazis and their interest in the occult. Um, you can just look at like, I don't know, like even just the use of the swastika itself is really interesting because that's a very ancient symbol um, and it's kind of reversed. It's moving uh, winter shine. Is that what it's called? Like where it's, rever- it's not moving clockwise, but counterclockwise. So they they kind of flipped it, um, which is kind of interesting because we think about like left hand, right hand paths of mysticism yeah. or like yeah. white or or black magic and occultism. And these things do exist like within this dual framework, there is dark energy there is dark magic and there is the opposite as well and so i think they what happened is like all the mysticism kind of got conflated with being bad in some sense um through that but i kind of want to touch upon this 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 point you also brought up about how like the modernist vision of humanity moving into this hyper rational space i find that to be such an interesting situation in the wake of quantum physics and like our understanding of just how irrational quantum physics behaves like and so i see like almost in the 21st century with our sort of uh more mainstream understanding of quantum physics because it's like we don't understand the nuance and depth of it but i think you know there's a lot of great communicators and science out there who can explain some of the basic ideas and mysteries with that we discover in quantum physics i think that is sort of leaning people to be more open to like man there's a lot we don't understand or man there's ways in which this universe is operating that actually makes no rational sense to what my basic Newtonian understanding of physics was. Um, and so I see that as being an interesting layer of of kind of priming people's consciousness in some way to be open to mystery again. Um, and so in some ways I see that is feeding into it well, as well as sort of this psychedelic Renaissance and spiritual Renaissance that we're seeing with more and more people interested in, in yogic practice, meditation, and, um, sort of non-ordinary states of consciousness that, um, it seems people are more and more open to this notion of this mysterious situation of life and, open to possibilities beyond the hyper-rational framework that we've been so attached to in this culture. So I think it's a very exciting and interesting time that we live in because all these things seem to be coming to a head at once. Um, Do you think that that has any like play as well, like the quantum physics sort of play within, I just think about the contrast between like the hyper-rational sense of like modern man or modern person in relation to the sort of irrational notions of quantum physics. Does that ever cross your mind? That sort of dichotomy? Yeah, yeah of course. I, you know, I think like, 
I don't, I think it's not something that I dive into deeply to. I, I'm aware of it. I've looked at it. It's really interesting that if you go back to, um, you know, you look at how those, uh, the the figures who, uh, the, the physicists who the theorized quantum physics in the early, you know, they were also aware of these issues and they were oftentimes, you know, in dialogue with, um, is it like uh, Wolfgang Pauli and Jung were in mm -hmm. conversation, right? So it's like, you know, so like when they're literally theorizing these things, there is some kind of, uh, there's there's definitely an exchange of ideas that are happening. Yeah. And, and but they're also, those physicists were also aware of the potential for um, what they called even then quantum mysticism. Mm. And they, and so they would sort of say like the, some of the conclusions that we're coming up to, you know, they could be applied in these ways. And, and we're not sure if that's actually what we are intending. So I, I, you know, one of the things that I see that kind of happens a lot uh, in the kind of like new age year of new age circles is mm -hmm. this tendency to always reach to quantum mechanics as a you know, explanation for things. Yeah. And like, I think I, I would like to see that done with a little bit more rigor because like yeah. it's a great metaphor, but I don't know to what extent it lines up with the physics behind it. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so like, like, um, but it, you know, again, it's like we, you know, the uh, materialist science being the kind of dominant like uh, epistemology of our era, right? The theory of how we know things. Uh, we're always trying to reach and grab those those things to like justify what we do, or to sort of like say like, hey, we, you know, we had this mystic experience, but we can synchronize it with what these guys in lab coats are saying. So therefore, <laughs> it must be legit. Right? It must be real. Like, <laughs> it must be real. And like, I don't know if we need to do that. Step. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because like, you know, th th there is a there is a there is a mystical tradition where these that is, you know, way precedes any of this that is saying similar things. Exactly. And, and and so I think that we can reach to the that that uh, lineage of um, of of mystics, of monks, of meditators, of of, you know, even religious the founders of religions to sort of say, like, there is something that's happening here. And yes. like, um, you know, the ra pure rationality has been critiqued so extensively. It has been, you know, shown to be such a, um, a you know, incomplete way of looking at the world that I don't even think we need to like reach out beyond that, right? Like that <laughs> is something, if, if, if anything, right? I mean, uh, listen, you know, listening to some of your early podcasts, you had a, a one where you were discussing like your perception of the idea of postmodernism mm -hmm. and what postmodernism mean in the arts. And, like postmodernism is itself a a skepticism or a criticism of the idea of rationality, yeah. of the idea of like that we can create a story like that that human reason is enough to justify what we do. Yeah. And so like um, so again, it's like it's already there on so many levels. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, I love what you're saying about how we can almost reach back beyond the quantum physics to these traditions and these histories of inquiry that have been talking about the similar ideas. It makes me think a lot about like, I, I think in like, um, like uh, Vedic cosmology and sort of philosophy, this notion of like Leela or the great illusion of of the, the not only the illusion of like the the self or like the illusion of this whole life it's a grand play um existing it's like what's the what do they say it's like it's like on the on a lotus coming out of the belly of uh 
of is it Brahma or Vishnu's Brahma. dream or Brahma's yeah. dream? You know, it's like we're living inside of a dream state. And um, and so they've been speaking to a lot of I think also in like um in a lot of like Buddhist philosophy, um, this notion of of like interdependence and this sort of like um, what's the what's the sort of term or, or actually of emptiness of shunyata like the study of emptiness of like yeah. being almost like this ground of unmanifest potential which makes me think a lot about quantum physics like this sort of ground of just pure potentiality that is unmanifest and becomes manifest when it is consciously observed i think about like the observer effect and then i like yeah. look at it and i think in relation to this this notion of emptiness um, and, and Buddhist philosophy. And so I think that is a great, great sort of way to link back beyond the modern age and see that these discussions or insights have been happening for millennia. Um, and I think what we need to do is, uh, is respect those traditions in a new way and be able to also find a way to integrate the lessons and the wisdom in the modern age. And I think that's the, that's really like the riddle in my mind is like, how do we bridge this gap between like wisdom, the ancient wisdom traditions of our planet into this hyper consumerist modern culture where we can totally just self-destruct? Like, how do we bridge this gap? That's a big question that I have. And I think something that is really important for us to figure out quick because science has advanced so fast that it can just, we can lose control of it and we could do something that we, you know, don't even understand what we could do to the evolution of our species, whether it's through AI or even just the decimation of this whole planet ecosystem through nuclear pro proliferation. And so I'm always like, as an artist and as a human, I'm always thinking about like, where do we, how do we bridge wisdom into the modern age so that we can live in harmony and in, in, in sync with each other so that we don't destroy each other? Um, and so I look at artists a lot of times as like, we're asking these big questions. We're also inviting people to ex not only experience these, these sort of sense of self beyond the boundaries of one's body, seeing ourselves as a part of this grander system of intelligence in life, um, but also like, inspiring people to even just seek to ask questions um about sort of where they are in the universe and what part do they play in it and who can they become within this lifetime where they feel more connected to like their essential sense of self um that has nothing to do with the value that we attribute to success in this culture you know whether it's monetary success or celebrity and all of that which i think is such a huge distraction yeah. And we, we, we live in a transitional era. I mean, that's, that's what we're experiencing right now is it's like the, the, the old stories that we used, um, the old, the way that we talked about our mythologies and our understanding of, uh, of, of, um, what it means to be a human, right? Like those stories are, have, are coming to an end mm -hmm. and we are, we are in a, in a, in a time where, uh, we are figuring out what the next stories that are going to carry us through for another millennium or something mm -hmm. are going to be. Yeah. And, um, you know, in to point to your question about like consumer culture or mass culture or popular culture in relation to this, right? Like, obviously that's not what that 
those that kind of media, that kind of world, those kinds of motivations, that those are not the questions that that environment are, are, are asking. Yeah. And and you know, they're they're the they're much more short-term. And so, like, so you know, I, I do think that like you know, our best guide for what the future is going to look like, for what will work in the future, isn't something that exists out there in the future, but is actually the things that have worked previously mm. and and that have, you know, have stood the test of time. Yes. And so like and but the but but we can't just, you know, apply those things exactly as they were in the past to the present. Right. Yeah. This is not like a loop where it just repeats over and over again. What we you know what it's periodic. Right. It, it changes over time. It rhymes, yeah. but it doesn't repeat. Yep. So what you know, what we're doing at this moment is we're trying to sort of like like process through really come to some kind of deeper understanding of what was successful historically. And then like, how do those things need to be um, uh, you know, re-manifest in the present in this, in this, you know, slightly different incarnation so that they will work for the unique conditions of the moment that we're in. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is an incredible question and something I 100% agree with. It's like, you have to have this bridge to the past, but you can't have such an attachment to it that you're just forcing to apply something that can't be applied in this landscape of the modern world. Um, and I, and like you're saying, I love how you said, it's like, it's, it's a pattern or it's a rhyme and, but it's not like a repeat. I also yeah. think of like a spiral, you know, how spiral comes back around in terms of like a 360 degree relationship. Yeah. It's coming back around to the same spot of the circle, but it's moving up or moving yes, down. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Like it's, so it's, it's the same, but not the same. Um, and so that is, I think important, like what you're saying about how we need to discover the next story that we're going to tell the new mythology of how that can help move our culture forward. Um, and I do think we need to have more respect and um, reverence for the wisdom that has been cultivated through our past and historical traditions. Um, but then how is that applied in, in this real hyper-technological age um, so that we do think longer term and not so short term? Uh, because we're seeing the repercussions of that right now, this sort of short-term thinking in terms of just the way industry has been sort of designed in the past hundred years, the relationship between politics and corporations, uh, the relationship between um, even the military industrial complex and, and political uh, like international politics. Like there is this short-term gain that's trying to be achieved, but at what cost? And so having this bigger vision for humanity is something we have to cultivate. And in my opinion, I think that's what artists in like a sort of general term, that's part of their charge in some way is to not only ask these questions, but to begin to cultivate a new story, a new mythology. Like I think art is a form of shamanism in its highest sense when it's, when it's done with great intention and consciousness and with the motivation of helping others in mind of pushing culture forward on a more positive evolutionary trajectory. Um, and so these are really important conversations that like we're having right now, and we're just scratching the very surface of these things. Um, I wish we could get all into the depth in over an hour, but it's, these are conversations that are going to happen, have to happen for years. Like we have to continue yeah. to talk about these things because that's how we work it out. 
through dialogue, through and through connection, connection with each other. Um, and I look at your artwork, not only the pendulum work, but I'm also really interested in how your artwork kind of does this. It does speak to the past, but you're doing it in your own unique expression in this modern time. Like I love these aura paintings or pieces that you've been doing as well thinking about like the energy body or like what is the human body in relation to sort of like the energy of the universe um, and those things. Could you maybe talk to us a little bit about that work? Cause I also, I don't want to skip over that particular body of work that you do as well, because I think there's a lot of interesting questions that you ask in the making of those, of those works themselves. Could you maybe speak a little bit about that body of work? Yeah. That, you know, in many ways, I was, I was interested in a couple of things, which is that the part of it is the, you know, the cliche of the image of the aura, mm -hmm. right, as this, as this, you know, the, the human body in this kind of like, uh, frontal pose schematically with this bubble around it. Mm -hmm. Like, where does, where does that, I mean, it, there's always a kind of tendency to say, well, it's a clairvoyant perception, but it, it clearly also kind of like circles around uh, as a, as a, as a cultural image, right? Mm -hmm. It's like repeated and, you know, diagrammed and explained on it. It, it changes and evolves over time. And so I have some idea of potentially where that image really first starts getting into the modern world and uh through the it, you know it definitely is through the publications of the theosophists mm -hmm. and um and so i really just wanted to look i think a little bit more carefully at that i was originally thinking about you know the pendulum for instance one of the things that's really compelling to me about the pendulum is that it's always unique Mm -hmm. Right. So like I can't actually duplicate if I make one, I can't make one that looks like it. It's it's just impossible. Yeah. The the way that it works. And so um, so it, it and I always kind of thought of them on a certain level as being sort of like um as being like portraits of galaxies. Like mm -hmm. this could be a galaxy, this could be a galaxy. You change the initial conditions. So it's 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 individualistic, it's a portrait. Mm -hmm. And so the more I learned about the use of the pendulum, I started to think really more about, you know, its idea as a sensing instrument. Yeah. So it's like, can I just literally put somebody's physical body, you know, into that environment and use the pendulum as a way to like make a unique uh image of them mm. and that's really where these images of the aura started coming from in these bodies it was like i think there's a there's uh one where you know i literally have somebody like lay down kind of on like a low table and then i do the pendulum piece directly on top of them so it kind wow. of becomes again like a portrait of them yeah of, of their energy of their their psychic field of the unique circumstances of it Wow. And that really then got me into looking at more and more images of, you know, the aura and like, okay, we always see the image of the body with an aura, but you know, what else? Everything has, has some kind of presence, yes. right? Has some kind of radiant energy, has some kind of environment plants do, animals do, yep. in, inanimate objects do. Yes. So then I started thinking about more and more of like, uh, what are, you know, what does this look like for a flower? What does yeah. this look like for other things? Um, and and the body things really started focusing back to me because like you were sort of saying 
we're at a moment where we're really pushing this idea of identity, especially in art. Mm -hmm. And we think of identity related to gender. We think of it related to sex. We think of it related to race. We think of it related to, you know, uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Sometimes age. Yeah. But I think from a metaphysical perspective, you realize that those are actually the smallest part of our identity, mm -hmm. right? Those are the things that are transient. If you are somebody who accepts the idea of reincarnation, well, what does it mean to think of who we are as an individual, right? Like who think of our identity as as having been uh, having been a man, having been a woman, having being old, having being young, having yeah. being, you know, like having lived through all of these different things in different ways. Yes. What and so that like, so whatever we can think of of like what it is that we are transcends so many of these things that we are culturally obsessed with at this moment as mm -hmm. thinking of as being absolute definitions of who we are as people. Exactly. And so like, so then the aura images in the bodies started becoming more and more about that sense of like pointing to maybe what, maybe the way that we think of who we are, maybe how we understand ourselves as a person, maybe we should be looking towards something beyond the labels that we use to think about ourselves currently. Exactly. I mean, I think the conversations around identity have an inc incredibly important foothold in certain aspects of our cultural Absolutely. evolution. Yeah. There's no doubt about it, but it's the obsession over it. Like it kind of has created this myopic experience of identity that is shutting out the, this sort of wider range of components of, of the self, of who we are, like what you're speaking to. And so I think those conversations have a critical importance in our current cultural situation. We have to work these things out, but not to our own sort of uh, detriment, because yeah. it's almost like when you hyper obsess with identity, then it becomes another form of discrimination. Um, and so it's tricky. It's a really tricky territory. And I yeah. leave it up to other artists to kind of explore that because that's something that I I can't speak to fully. That's just not my, that's not what my art is going to be able to contribute to that conversation so much. But I think we need to balance that conversation. It's almost like balancing the, the relative subjective sort of um, differences with this sort of seeking of the universal, of the yeah. essence of the, of the sort of primordial ground from which all multiplicity diversity emerges from and so when we have both playing i think it helps create this nice balance in art itself because if art is only focused this way or only focused that way we can't really see the nuances between and therefore yeah. we can't have a complete conversation um yeah. so i look at i think that's such a brilliant way of which you're sort of thinking about the aura and sort of using the pendulum as this sort of it is a sort of divination tool, uh, but you're using it in a way to kind of express what can't be fully expressed through words or through your own conscious mind. You're letting sort of the unconscious sort of work with this person's energy to express their unique aura or energy field. Um, yeah. I see a lot of, I don't, and I don't know hundred percent how true this is, but I've seen people talk about the electromagnetic fields around our bodies and how there is sort of like a detectable electromagnetic field that emanates from what I've seen again, like I'm not a scientist, like I don't know 100% what can be true or how to verify it, but it made sense to me like our heart 
as being because the electromagnetic power of the heart as being sort of the beacon of the magnetic field, the electromagnetic field that is surrounds our body, which could be considered an aura. I know that in altered states of consciousness I've had, I've directly seen the aura or energy fields of plants, of animals, and of people. Yeah. I've, I mean, again, like we could, you're hallucinating, but what's hallucination? What is consciousness? We can, <laughs> I, I mean, we could just totally talk forever about that, but I can't, I can't negate the fact of the experience I had where you had a one-on-one -on -one experience with the, this sort of electromagnetic energy pulsating out of all of life, even inanimate objects, everything has an energy field to it. Um, and so I think those are really interesting paintings that are, I don't know if you can call them paintings, but these artworks that you're doing and the ones that you're doing with the plants as well, they're so beautiful. I'll flash some up right here so people can see them because they are incredible and they do kind of hearken to the experiences I've had, the sort of visual experiences I've had of these things. So I think you're doing a really interesting and amazing job of trying to express this subtle territory of like the energy body and what that means. And um, I think this conversation is really important to be able to pull back the layers of identity. I think that's what meditative process is in a lot of ways, is being able to peel the layers of our attachment to certain components of our identity to get down to this essence of our consciousness um, that has no bearing on place and time and uh, personal history or any of that. It's kind of like existing beyond those spaces. Um, mm -hmm. And I know personally, when I've tapped into that feeling of being connected to that source of self or energy within myself, it's, it's life-changing because it gives you sort yeah. of, a, it gives you a, pl a place of refuge. So when you find yourself getting so caught up in your identification with your personality, your personal history, forms of your identity, like it can, it can pull you out of this sort of loop in your mind and get you back down to like the essence, like you're a living, breathing being in the middle of the universe, existing in this magical, mystical space of unknowing experience. And like, you're a part of it all. It's like, you're not separate from any of it. And it's kind of like, for some that could be an overwhelming experience. I can definitely imagine. But for me, I find a lot of solace in it and a lot of like a sense that I can breathe. Um, a sense that it's like these problems aren't need to don't need to be solved right away. They do need to be solved, but it's not going to happen overnight. And we have to engage in this process of inquiry and this process of, uh, of engaging with the world without being attached to it. Um, that's the trick. That's what I'm grappling with personally is like, how do you fully engage with the world without being attached to it through your ego um, and your identification with those things. And so it's, it's a, it's a riddle for me that I'm every day trying to unravel. <laughs> it's, it's the work of more than a lifetime. It, it feels you that know, way I, for sure. <laughs> when, when, you know, I was talking about this being a transitional era, right? Like, the, and this work and these questions we're asking, like, we're not going to answer these questions in, in this time. We're not yeah. going to answer them in the 21st century. We're not going to answer them in our lifetimes. This is a process that is, that is bigger than that. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, I think that part of like a, a lot of the, 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 
downsides to the visions of modernism that happened in the 20th century, they they all become, including the spiritual movements, they become obsessed with the idea that the transformation is imminent, mm-hmm. that like it's immediately going to happen. You know, we're going to have the, you know, dictatorship of the proletariat next week. We're going to have, <laughs> you know, the new man of modernism a month from now. Yeah. We're going to, you know, fix all the problems. Technology is going to solve the answers and it's going to happen, you know, imminently and the reality is it's like no it's like it's this is a very slow and long process and and it's a process also that like never ends right like when we get to this version of it that one will also run its course and then you know a thousand years from now people like you and there'll be another version of you and me having this conversation (laughs) saying like okay what do we have to do these things were working and they're not working anymore and now we need a new vision yes So it's like there's so so they do call, you know, it's like like you were sort of saying the mystical experience that I think many some people are able to access through positive psychedelic experiences. Right. It does create a place of refuge. It does create a place of like, oh, like I can observe my own thinking. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I I'm. Um, you know, I can put things into perspective yeah. like this also that like this is a transient experience, right? That like this does what everything changes. This doesn't last forever. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, like you said, I think there are some people that can be a horrifying experience, but for other people, you know, that is a source of strength and refuge. And, you know, for me, as definitely as an artist and as an individual, that's the place that I'm always trying to work from. Yes. And, 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 you know, reach back into that, that bottomless well. And right, like bring those bring those eternal truths from that well back into culture. You know, I want to just like add one thing, I realized like the difference between doing these things as an artist and doing these things as say, like, like a spiritual practitioner is that especially in the in the paradigm of of you know of of spiritual movements from the 20th century of the new age the focus is all on self is mostly on self development right mm-hmm. like i'm you know i'm going to i'm open up my chakras i'm going <laughs> to become a more balanced person through meditation i'm going to you know whatever you know raise my vibration and things like that and like those are that's a totally necessary thing that you know you need to engage with but I think that the the difference, and I think that what being an artist points to in this situation is where you start to think about those in terms of everybody else. Yes. Right. That you're like, you just, you know, other people are not just illusions, mm-hmm. right? Like we really all are here on some, you know, yeah. participating in this together. Yeah. And, and so as an artist, what I can try to do is, you know, in an imperfect way, pull something out of those, that realization and hopefully make it available to other people. Yes in in through the work and through their experience of my artwork and and those kinds of things and so at least point to the possibility of like look there's an there is another another existence is possible another way of looking at the world is possible um and and it's not it's not something that that um is out there that we have to find or invent it's something that's always been here and we just need to figure out how to reaccess it in this new way. Exactly. I mean, that's such a beautiful point, Michael, like just about what the, in terms of the artist's role in a certain way, like, yes, we need to continually be conscious and intentional, the way we help ourselves evolve, but to what purpose? And for me, that purpose is so ultimately you can be the best vessel of service toward others so that you can contribute to the well-being of all. Um, I've always have been just for many, you know, 
decades, like just really attached to this idea of the bodhisattva and really connected to that sort of idea in the in Buddhist tradition, this notion of like achieving states of enlightenment, not for your own end, but so that you can become a vessel and help lead others, like, or delaying your ultimate enlightenment until everybody yeah. else goes through the gate and you're the last ones through this sense of like ultimate compassion. Um, to me, that's uh, something I always just come back to, like trying to center myself in that perspective of like working for the well-being of all. And that includes you, too, because you are a part of that. Like you can't and sometimes you see people, you know, with the ascetic traditions, like negating the individual sense of yourself in relation to others. And I think it's maybe for some, maybe that does work. But for me, like it includes you too. So like there is, you have to work on yourself but at the same time, help others in every capacity that you can. And I think what you're pointing to is a role of an artist is to help facilitate that process. I see art as a real, like the ultimate form of communication or bridge building between people. It's a way to reach out and connect um, with others to show that, you know, you're not alone and the, and we're, we're all grappling with these questions and these ideas um, or to reveal to them like a place of refuge, like a sense of like where they might find a sense of centering or home um, yeah. within the context. Because it, our, our culture is very um, prone to uh, creating a lot of self-isolation, a lot of loneliness, a lot of people feeling disconnected. And I think as artists, our job is to figure out ways to make people feel more connected. Um, and that's a way of helping. Um, and I look at the work that you're doing. I mean, you're doing it, man. Like the work you're doing is doing exactly what your intention is. And I just push you to keep going, like keep making what you're doing. I mean, I can't wait. Next time I'm in LA, I was in LA uh, uh, a little over a week ago. I got to see the Transcendental Painting uh, Show. I missed your talk at LACMA by just a few days. I was so sad by it. I was doing like a quick trip with uh, my wife. Um, but next time I'm through there, I definitely got to come through your studio and hang out because I think you and I have a, so much to share with each other and more to talk about, not only as artists, but people who are deeply invested in thinking about these ideas uh, that we've kind of barely touched upon today. Um, but we've been talking for about an hour and 15 minutes now, and I know it's Sunday and you might have, uh, you know, other things to do, but I just wanted to thank you for your time and for the work that you're doing, not only as an artist, but as um, a writer, a lecturer, an intellect in this space, someone who can be a real communicator um, to help, like we were talking about earlier, like bridge this gap between our history, but also finding a way to have it evolve and find a new expression in the modern world. Um, so thank you so much, Michael, for, for all your work and for everybody out there, check the show notes out. I'll have links not only to Michael's website, but to a lot of the lectures he's done. You'll also be able to find them on YouTube, articles he's written, interviews he's done. He just has so much out there for you uh, to, uh, to look at, to read and to listen to. So please check it out, y'all. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Martin. It was great to talk. Yeah, great talking with you. Peace. Thank you all so much for tuning in to this episode of Concerning the Spiritual and Art. Um, if you like what you're listening to, please uh, leave a comment. Uh, give me a rating on whatever podcast platform you're, you're tuning in on. 
and uh, get, help me get the word out. Share it with any friends or family, anyone you think might be interested in uh, what I'm doing over here. Super excited to bring a lot more of this content to you. Sending lots of love out to each and every one of you. Peace, y'all.